if you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are Bibles scattered throughout the seats. You may be sitting on one. Uh, we would love for you to take that with you. If you don't have a copy of, of the Scriptures, that would be our gift to you. And we'd love to, to talk to you about any questions you may have about it. We're going to be starting a new series this morning. Having finished up a bird's-eye view of the book of Genesis, now we dive in to something a lot more specific, to something as specific as one man's instructions to one church in history. We're looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians. And this morning, our passage is all about prayer. I can't remember the last time I spoke with somebody who really felt good about their prayer life who felt like it was exactly what they wanted it to be, right? That it was enough time, that they saw enough fruit from it, that they really felt like they had focus in it, that they felt like it worked. I don't know what the explanation for that would be. I've got some ideas based on my own experience. I think maybe one, one problem is that we struggle for lack of models. Or maybe the models that we have for prayer are sometimes more discouraging than they are encouraging. I'm thinking in particular of a guy named George Mueller, Maybe you guys have heard of him. He was a pastor for most of the 1800s in England and also ran this really big and successful orphanage. And George Mueller has become known more than anything else as a man of prayer. This is a guy who decided that he was going to run his orphanage without any fundraising. He had no department of development. He had no grant writers. This guy never asked one single human person for anything because he believed that it would be a testimony to the power of God if the orphanage was able to survive in spite of that. So he, he prayed. Anytime they needed something, he prayed for it. And it, he was, his prayers were answered again and again. I mean, there's a couple of really great stories. I don't think they're apocryphal. Stories like, uh, like for instance, there was one time where he was in prayer with a friend at, at, in the evening. All the kids were already asleep, and he realized they didn't have enough food for the next day. They didn't even have breakfast. And so he prayed. He stayed up for I don't know how long, hours, praying with the confidence that God would supply them with food. Even though at this point all stores were closed, there's no way he could go out. And even if he had money, he wasn't going to be able to go out and get food for these children. And next morning, when they sat down to breakfast at the appointed time, everyone was fed. Hundreds were fed. Another story is he's, he's sailing to, uh, from England to Canada. He's, uh, he's, he, he's caught, his ship is caught in the midst of this dense fog, and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to get to his appointment in time. And he tells the captain of the ship that he has to be there by such and such day. It's like a couple days away. And the captain says, that's impossible. And he tells the captain, it's not impossible. God will do it. I haven't missed an appointment in something like 57 years. I'll be there. So he takes the, uh, the captain in, into the bridge or wherever it is that you read maps and do ship-like stuff. And, and they pray together. And, and the fog lifts and they get there on time. It, it, these are the kind of models that we have in the back of our head, but I don't know about you, but I don't know that I find those models that encouraging. <laughs> I don't know that I have ever had that happen to me where there was this really long shot of the thing that I wanted to see happen, and I prayed about it and believed it would happen, and then it happened. I think the danger in examples like George Mueller and in some of the great heroes of the faith that we re- whose prayer lives we read about is that they, they can inspire cynicism in us if you come to think of that as the normal course of things and you start to look at your own prayer life and it doesn't square up and you start to wonder if prayer is all just a sham, if it doesn't work because it doesn't produce the effects that you want it to. I think that's a danger. And and maybe, ultimately, the fact that we aren't happy with our prayer lives stems from the fact that we just aren't convinced that that it works in the way that other things do. 
I think another problem is that we lack focus. It's all too easy to get distracted by the all too vivid focus we have on other things going on in our lives. All of us are, have, have so many things, not just technology, but, but just worries. The cares of life just crowd in, and they are daily needs. They're things that have to be done. And if we, if we don't put our hands to that plow, no one is. And so we, we set aside prayer as something that, that isn't as necessary as the other things that we have to do in a given day. And I think one of the greatest gifts to us that in, in, the, in the scriptures is models for how to pray in spite of our distraction and in spite of our discouragement. Models that give us insight into the way God wants us to approach him and into the, the ways of approaching him that are, that are promised to yield success, even if it doesn't look like we think it will. The Bible is full of prayers that give us examples uh, Paul, the Psalms, you know, it's basically a whole book full of 150 remarkable prayers to God that span the gamut of human experience from anger and the desire to see someone punished, to see hellfire come down on someone who's done you wrong. And there's even stuff like that in the Psalms, all the way over to the sweetest, most intimate reflections on a God who satisfies the soul like, like water, a person who's thirsty. The Psalms are great. Great, uh, great models for prayer. Jesus himself taught us to pray, as we've just reflected on and, and, just, uh, and, and, and just celebrated in our own prayer. And then there's Paul. I think perhaps more than any other portion of Scripture, what has influenced my prayer life, but what I pray for, how I go about it, is the prayers of the Apostle Paul. He, almost every single one of his letters opens with a prayer for the people that he's writing to. And in those prayers, you get a sense of what Paul thought was most important for them. What he wanted to see happen for them is what comes out in, in these opening prayers. They're usually mix, a mixture of thanksgiving and then request, supplication. And Colossians is no exception to that. The first big chunk of Colossians that we're looking at this morning is a prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians, the guys he's about to, to write theological, deep and weighty theological truth to. He begins by by telling them how he prays for them on a regular basis. And here's the thing that I want us to come away with today, what I want us to notice about the way that he prays for them. His prayer for them is structured by and never goes beyond the gospel. What he prays for them is the gospel. And in his prayer, which breaks down into both thanksgiving and request or supplication, what Paul is illustrating for us is something that is basic to the Christian life something that's probably best captured in the phrase the already, the balance between the already and the not yet. A lot of times when we think about that phrase, what we're thinking about is, is big picture. We think about the kingdom of God, and we have, all these, we have all these texts in the New Testament about it coming in power, and no one will able, be able to deny it. Everyone will see it for what it really is, and, and that's not yet. But, the, but what we already have is, is the church as a, as a sort of colony or outpost of that coming kingdom. So there's a tension between those of us who live like citizens of that kingdom now and our, our expectation that that kingdom will fully be here at some later time. There's the already and the not yet. But on a much more narrow and specific, even intimate level, each one of our lives as believers is defined by a tension between what's already true for us because of the gospel and what isn't yet true for us in our experience. Paul's prayers directly reflect this tension, and they're captured in his thanksgiving for what God has already done and his supplication for what he wants to see the gospel do in people's lives. That, that's what I want to focus on. This morning, and before we get too far, 
Would you mind standing with me as we read from Colossians chapter 1? We're going to read from uh, the first 14 verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us of your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. You can be seated. The already. Paul gives thanks for what the gospel has already done in the Colossians. Paul's prayer in chapter 1 begins and ends on the subject of thanksgiving. Did you notice that? The first few verses of his prayer, verses 3, 4, and 5, he's giving thanks for things that he's already heard have been done among the, the Colossians. And then if you skip to the end of the prayer, verses 12 through 14, he's calling for them to give thanks for the gospel. He's praying, he's telling them what it is that he asks for them. And what he asks God for them is that God would give them a spirit of thanksgiving for the gospel. Paul's prayer is bracketed by his gratitude to God for what the gospel has already done. And here's, I think, the the best way for us to divide this up, to understand what it is that Paul gives thanks for. I think it's, it's two distinguishable things. He gives thanks for the gospel itself. That's especially at the end where he's calling on them to give thanks in verses 12 through 14. And he, give th- he gives thanks for the evidence that the gospel is doing its work. He gives thanks for the work of the gospel in the lives of the Colossians. That's especially in verses 3 and 4. Now, just for the sake of, of working through this and understanding it, I think it would be best to start with the foundation, with the gospel itself. Understand what it is specifically that Paul gives thanks for when he's thank- giving thanks for the gospel. And then move on to his thanksgiving for what the gospel has done in us. So, so verses 12 through 14 it is one of my favorite summaries of the gospel in all the New Testament. Paul draws up the essence of the gospel transaction in the language of light and darkness. It's kingdom language. It's about citizenship, about allegiance, about a transfer from a kingdom of darkness where everything is self and sin and idolatry to a kingdom of light where there is joy and hope and peace. 
It's language that sounds familiar to us because it's the language of the Bible's entire story. It's a story we've been tracing a lot at the, at the beginning in Genesis. The last 10 weeks we've spent in Genesis have been about seeing how the seeds of where the Bible goes and the rest of its story are planted in the book of Genesis. And the Genesis is essentially the story of a kingdom rebellion where Adam, Eve, and all of their descendants traded in the peace and joy of the Garden of Eden, of the rule of God, for their own rule. It's a story of the effects of that decision on the rest of human history. That story continues throughout the rest of the Bible, and it, it is nowhere better defined than in the terms of darkness and light. You think about the, the book of Isaiah and the promise that John applies to Jesus, that the people who walked in darkness have now seen a great light, and the, the darkness could not overpower it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of the Bible, which Paul understands to be the story of the whole world. It's a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. I don't know of any better way to describe what the gospel is about. It's familiar. This description is familiar because we know the Bible's storyline. I think it should also be familiar to us, though, because we know this, this description, I think, rings true in our own experience, especially this, this description of self and sin and idolatry, this sort of summary description of it as darkness. I think darkness almost has a feel to it that I've felt heavy in myself before. I think we we see it in the best uh, the best descriptions, artistic descriptions of the world from the the pointlessness that is the point of Seinfeld or some Woody Allen movie, to the self righteousness of a Flannery O'Connor character, to the shocking violence of some sort of Tarantino movie or Cormac McCarthy novel. These things that are trying to describe the world to us, they communicate a darkness that just fits all too well with what we know about the way the world works. We turn to history books or newspapers to find examples from real life, from modern genocide to sex trafficking in South Asia to pedophilia and legalized racism, even in this country, even just a few decades ago by most of our parents who were involved in, in, in that milieu. But if we're honest, we don't have to fixate on social problems, what we can describe as the problems of other people and other places, to understand this darkness that Paul summarizes as our condition apart from Christ. We can see it in ourselves. It's in us from our ceaseless servitude to pleasure that never seems to get satisfied to our desire to gain approval from others to the sorts of things that you've said about other people when they're not around to bitterness, jealousy that grow and sort of swell in us until they take over. If darkness has a feel to it, I've felt it, and I'm guessing that you have too. Maybe you even feel like you're in bondage to it. That it's just, there's some habit that you just can't seem to shake. No matter how badly you want to stop doing that thing, it just has you in its grip. That is the story of a human existence. And it's a story of darkness. The message of the gospel, what Paul gives thanks for here, is that God, while we're stuck in darkness, God, the supreme and sole actor in this drama, comes into that darkness, grabs hold of us, and pulls us out of it, transferring us to the kingdom of his son. It's language of the exodus, right? That's the verses 12 through, through 14 are about an exodus, one far greater and only barely foreshadowed by the exodus of the Old Testament. It is a, it is a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And Paul gives thanks for it because that's a gospel that's outside of our ability to manufacture. That's something that has to come to us as a gift, 
But Paul also gives thanks for the work of the gospel in people. This is not just a system of ideas. It's not even just a story. It's an active force. It's a power that changes people. And that's where he begins his thanksgiving. In verses 3 and 4, he says, look, look at how the sentence works. We always thank God when we pray for you. And then he gives you the reason that he's thanking God. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And then in verse 5, he connects it to the reason. The reason you have faith in Christ and love for all the saints is because of a hope that it's laid up for you in heaven. Ultimately, the gospel has an effect on the way that people live. When you live with the hope of heaven, it has a certain look to it. It has a supernatural look to it that's worth giving thanks for. So he gives thanks for their faith in Christ. That sounds basic enough, maybe even a little too familiar, simple. But if you really think about it, there is, is, is there really anything that's less natural to us than what Paul understands by faith? Which is a sort of staking of your life to something that's outside of you, that you can't control, that you're relying on that isn't you. Is there anything more natural to us than self-reliance, especially in America, where we sort of define even our whole culture as an up-from-the-bootstraps type climate? We think we provide ourselves with everything that we need. That just is it's in our blood almost. Paul gives thanks because he sees something far different from that in the Colossians, and he knows that that's the evidence, the gospel doing its work in them. They have a trust that's not in themselves but in, in Christ. Is this something you ever give thanks for? Have you ever, you ever really give thanks for, for evidence of this sort of faith in yourself or in others that you love? I mean, probably we, if we do it at all, we do it whenever we see someone come to faith. We give thanks when we see someone converted. We see some sort of transformation take place in them then. But have you ever given thanks for the faith that you see in a believer who continues to trust Jesus when everything around them is falling apart? So many of us have walked uh, from a distance or intimately with close friends of ours at Grace, the Stallings, who, have, who've, who as a family have just survived the, the tragic and all too premature death of, of Emmett? Have you given thanks for the amazing faith that his wife has shown through all this? Have you read the things that she, has, that she has said summarizing her own experience and the way that God has held her up through it? That's a reason to give thanks because that's a faith that doesn't make sense. The, on the surface, it looks like she's been abandoned, but she doesn't see it that way. She sees, she sees it as evidence that God is holding her up and even working out her good through these circumstances. That's supernatural. That's reason to give thanks. He also gives thanks for the love that they have for all the saints, and that's no less supernatural. These two things, faith and love, always go hand in hand for Paul because they're two sides of a gospel coin that have to go together if the gospel's doing its work in you. Think about it. When, when what you rest on is a faith in something Jesus has done and not something you do, what that looks like in practice is for you to love other people. Because what you've been set free from is when, when you're secure in your identity in Christ, you're free to give rather than to hoard. You know that all that you need is already yours in Jesus. And so you can live outwardly in a way that isn't trying to build yourself up to promote your own identity and your security, trying to get from others rather than to give them. You're free to live a lifestyle of love because of your faith that's rooted in Jesus. Paul sees this love for all the saints at work in the Colossians. It's not just, notice that it's, it, it's love for all the saints. 
This is the kind of love that transcends the normal boundaries that define who we have affection for and who we don't. This isn't just love for people who are around the same age as you are, people who have kids that are the same age as you are, people who, who have the same political affiliations that you do or like the same music or go to the same Y or have kids in the same school. These are the kinds of things that normally tie us together. A love that's the evidence of the gospel's work is a love that transcends all those boundaries. It's a love for all the saints. Paul sees it in the Colossians and he gives thanks for it. So, Paul begins with thanksgiving for the gospel and with evidence that it's changing people. The question to us, I think, is what portion of our prayer lives are given to thanksgiving? What portion of of your prayer life is given over to thanksgiving? I'm guessing for most of us, it's not all that much. I want... I think maybe that the reason Thanksgiving is not as natural for us is that we're just predisposed more to discontent than we are to gratitude. It's just in us. It just comes naturally. What we notice is what we don't have, not what we do. We're not all that different from a kid at Christmas who's got a pile of presents, and the only thing they can do is fixate on opening that next one. You know, they're just voracious. They get this look in their eyes, and they're just tearing through this paper, and they don't stop, even for things that they were hoping that they would get. They often don't stop to, to savor what they've been given until they get to the end, and they're, they're always looking for more. That's kind of the way we treat life in general, I think. We're only satisfied with something for an instant, it seems like, before we're on to the next purchase, the next, the next itch to be scratched. We're blinded by greed, a desire for what we don't have, or for, for more than what we have. We're blinded by insecurity, which is an underestimation of what we already have, if it's not enough. But I think maybe more than anything, when it comes to the gospel and its work, we lack thanksgiving for it as sort of a normal course where we begin our prayers and and litter all through them thanks for, for the gospel. I think one reason we lack that is that we just lack a vivid sense of what the gospel is of how great its depths are, of how significant a thing it is to be guilty of sin against an almighty God who won't tolerate it, of how amazing it is that the same God sinned against is the God who gives himself up to save for himself a people. That's a message that comes all too familiar. It seems all too abstract. And I think that fact has always been true. And that's why Paul doesn't stop his prayer with thanksgiving. Paul gives thanks for what's already true. The gospel is real. It's out there. It's accomplished. It's finished. But its work in us is incomplete. We're still engaged in this process that theologians have come to call sanctification, a process of becoming more and more holy, of being, in Paul's language, conformed into the image of of Jesus. Because that process isn't finished, because the gospel doesn't appear as beautiful and vivid as it should to us, Paul prays. He recognizes the not yet, and so he asks God to continue doing the work of the gospel in the lives of these Colossians. Paul knows that gospel work is wholly dependent on the same God who authored the gospel and who imparted it to the hearts of those who've experienced it. So he prays. Now, here's, here's what I want us to do in the rest of our time. I want to dig deep into the details of what Paul prays for. In verses 9 through 14, Paul is, is, is supplicating. He is asking God for things for these Colossians. 
I think the, maybe the best way to get at these details is with a series of questions. They're listed in the outline that's on your worship guide. I think we need to ask, first of all, what is the knowledge of God's will? That is basically the prayer itself. It all boils down to the knowledge of God's will. That's what Paul's asking for. So what is that kind of knowledge? Why is that knowledge useful? And what would it look like for us to pray for that knowledge? How should we pray? How should we go about seeking that knowledge? Those are the three questions I want us to answer in the rest of our time this morning. So, what is this knowledge of God's will? Uh, Notice, I, I think probably first of all, that this is the gist of his prayer. I don't want to assume that that's clear. Look at the way the sentence works in verse 9. So he says, From the day we heard about your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. So here comes the request. Here's what we're asking. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Everything else after this modifies that central claim, that central request. The reason he's asking is so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And what a manner worthy of the Lord looks like is a manner that's fully pleasing to him, that bears fruit, that increases in the knowledge of God, that's marked by strength, and that gives thanks. All of that just supports the one central claim, the claim that what Paul is praying for is knowledge of God's will. So what is it? Most commentators I read were really quick to try to distinguish what it actually is from what we're going to immediately think that it is because of the way we normally use the phrase the will of God. When we normally think about the will of God, what we're thinking of is future-oriented guidance, right? We want to know what kind of we want to know about decisions. We want to know about vocation or calling. What is it? What is God's will for me in this situation? Should I or should I not take this job or marry this person? That's what we think of when we hear God's will. This use of God's will and, and the way that it works in Paul is very different from that concept. Paul's use of God's will has to do with what God's up to. The will of God is God's designs for the world. It's his purpose. It's what he's working out in history. It has to do with everything that he is and all that he wants to accomplish. So I think you can summarize the will of the Lord as the gospel itself. The gospel is God's will. It's what he wants to see happen. It's the structure for all of history, the purpose according to which he's orchestrated all things. That's God's will. Paul's praying that they would know the gospel. So if that's, what the, if that's what the knowledge of his will is, if that's what he's asking that they have, why is he praying for that? He's already admitted that they've understood the gospel. They ha- they've, they've received its message. They've committed their lives to it. They have faith in Christ. So it, presumably they know the basic facts of the gospel. They know about their sin. They know that God created the world, that they have sinned and fallen short of his standards, and that Jesus has come as an all-sufficient sacrifice to wipe that sin away, and that in him they have the hope of heaven. They know those facts. So why is he asking that they would have knowledge of God's will? Or why is he asking, in other words, that they would have knowledge of the gospel? I think it has everything to do with the kind of knowledge that he wants them to have. Paul describes this knowledge as a knowledge of God's will that's in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is a different kind of knowledge. A different kind of knowledge than knowledge of a set of statements. So we encounter truths of American history as a certain kind of knowledge. I know certain statements to be true, like the fact that George Washington is the first president of this country or the fact that Barack Obama is the president of this country now. I know those things to be true with a certain kind of knowledge. Paul wants them to encounter the truths, the propositions of the gospel with a spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
Wisdom, ultimately, is about making right assessments. It's about discernment. It's about seeing truth and recognizing it, about recognizing beauty, about recognizing goodness. Wisdom is about deciding on, the, on your posture towards truth. Wisdom is not just acknowledging a certain set of facts as true, but embracing those facts as an orienting feature of your life. That's what wisdom is about. When he says that he wants them to know the gospel through spiritual wisdom, what he wants them to see is to see that the gospel is good and beautiful and right. To see this is so despite the fact that the world finds the same exact statements to be foolish. So you have what he wants is a believer to, to read these statements about the gospel and have a heart that overflows with joy and love of them. Whereas someone who doesn't believe could read the exact same statements over here and have no impact made in their heart. They don't taste them. What he's praying for is a perception of the gospel, of God's will. And one of my favorite ways to describe this kind of perception is, is a way that Jonathan Edwards did it. He described it in one of my favorite sermons as, as a, a new spiritual sense. What we need to perceive the gospel in the way that Paul is wanting the Colossians to perceive the gospel is a sense that's a whole lot like our sense of sight or smell or taste or touch. We need an extra sense that is a spiritual one, a sense that allows us to perceive things as they really are when we encounter the propositional statements of the gospel, a sense that when it tastes the gospel, responds with with joy, recognizes its sweetness. Edward's example was that it's one thing to know that honey is sweet, you can know that based on a lot of the ways that we know any other thing, based on testimony from other people, based on the chemical analysis of experts. We can know that honey is sweet, but that's, there's a different kind of knowledge that comes from actually tasting that honey and having it explode across your taste buds. That, that, that's a kind of knowledge that's, that's different. And this is the kind of knowledge Paul wants us to have of the gospel. It's the same kind of knowledge that he prays for in Ephesians chapter 1 in a prayer that's a lot like this one, where Paul actually prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of your inheritance in the saints. They already believe those things to be true, but Paul is there praying that the eyes of their hearts would be open to see it, to see what isn't real yet as if it were. That's what kind of knowledge Paul's praying for. So why is it useful? Paul gets at this too. This is where he goes in verse 10 and 11. This kind of knowledge is important. Note the key words. So that, here comes the reason, we can please the Lord. So that we can walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. This worthiness concept would have made immediate sense to Paul's readers because they lived in a shame culture. They lived in an ancient world where shame meant something where the way that you behaved represented all of your attachments in this world, especially your family or maybe your training or what city you're from. The sorts of attachments that gave them identity were represented by the way that they lived. They, they knew what it was to walk worthy or unworthy of those attachments. Paul's writing to the Colossians saying what you need is a vivid spiritual sense of the truth of the gospel so that you will walk in a way that testifies to the worthiness of that gospel. That when people see what the gospel is doing in you, the way that you're living, they will say the gospel is true because otherwise these things wouldn't be possible. He wants them to walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And that means a manner that bears fruit, that is not 
sitting on this knowledge, but seeking to actively implant it in others and cultivate others in this knowledge. It's a knowledge that continues to multiply so that you become more and more in tune with the Father and know more and more about Him and long to know Him more deeply. It's a kind of knowledge that, that ultimately leads to endurance, in, even in pain and, and sorrow. Paul says it's, it's something that's, that, by which you're strengthened. Our translations obscure this connection. It, it, it starts a new sentence at the end of verse 10, but in the original, what is translated here, may you be strengthened, is just another participle, just like bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened to endure. All of these things are an outworking of a vivid sense of the gospel as true and beautiful and right. That's what he's praying for. The, the worthiness of the gospel is in evidence anytime someone endures in faith in spite of suffering because that's not natural. Paul wants their lives to show what the gospel is made of. He is praying based on his understanding of what Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. When your affection for the old self is killed and replaced by an affection for Jesus that's rooted in a gospel that motivates you, that seems beautiful to you and seems inevitably attractive to you, that is the only engine for true and lasting growth. He knows that a, that a life worthy of Jesus can only be motored, can only be powered by an affection for the gospel that is supernatural. That's why he prays this for them. He wants God to give them this knowledge so that their lives bear the marks of someone changed by Jesus. So, that's the knowledge. Here's the usefulness of it, that it's the only positive force that can bring change. How do we ask for it? How do we pray for these things? I think Paul gives us some insight here, too. Uh, just through a, a couple different features of his prayer. I think first, and this, is, this in my mind is most important, I think we've got to pray with despair. When we ask for these things, we've got to ask about it from a place of despair. What I don't mean is hopelessness. That's often how we, what we mean about despair, that there's just no hope. What I mean is despair about any power that you have to bring about what you're asking for. You need to be despairing of yourself, of anything in you that's good or that's able or powerful enough to bring this thing about. Pray from a sense of desperation. Now, I think that's actually more natural for us even than Thanksgiving. I think supplication, asking for things, may be the most natural form of prayer for us because we often run into things that we're out of control. We're, we're out of control. So you're you're on the interstate and it's perpetually and Nashville is perpetually perpetually under construction. You got these big concrete barriers and you're caught between a concrete barrier and a and a big semi. You're praying that that thing is not going to come over on you and that's out of your control. There's no way that you can manipulate that situation, and so you feel that despair and you pray. Or you pray that your children will uh, respond better to discipline. And there's no way that you can make that happen because they're autonomous. But you pray that they connect with it, right? Because it's out of your control. We pray for delivery from sickness. We pray for the safe delivery of babies. We're doing that a lot these days at Trinity, thankfully. We pray for all sorts of things that are out of our hands. The problem is that I don't think we often consider the progress of the gospel as something just as out of our hands as our safety on the roadways or the safe delivery of a baby. We don't have the right, a healthy sense of our own impotence when it comes to the gospel doing its work in us. 
Paul prays in here because he knows that the kind of knowledge that he wants them to have is a supernatural kind that isn't manufactured, even by the most persuasive and beautiful of words. Paul comes preaching the cross, preaching the power of the gospel only because he knows that, 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 that though it's foolishness to the world, Though words of wisdom and persuasive rhetoric may be able to produce some forms of change in people, the kind of change he's looking for is not producible by anyone but God. So he prays from despair. We've got to join him. We've got to pray with the same urgency that we'd use for deliverance from some sort of terminal illness. You're struggling with apathy? You feel like you've lost a a sense of God's presence, his closeness to you, his love for you. You feel like your pray, what prayer you have or what time you have in God's word isn't fruitful. Maybe that's led you to, to do much less of it. If that's where you are, more discipline isn't going to help you there. It, I mean, it, 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 discipline's always a good thing, but it's not going to miraculously produce the thing you're looking for. What's going to get you past your spiritual apathy is going to be God opening the eyes of your heart to see that the gospel is true, that it's beautiful, that it offers you something you can't find anywhere else. You need to pray. That's your ticket past apathy. Puritans, Puritans used to say, I don't, know that, I don't know, I can't put this in anyone's mouth. It's just sort of a truism that comes down from them. But you pray until you start praying. Even if it's dry, maybe boring to you at that moment, you keep after it. You latch hold to it. You pray until you start to really pray. Until you start to feel the, the, the work of God in your heart. Pray with despair about your apathy. You worried about an unbelieving friend or loved one? I am. Ever feel how powerless you are to convince them of the power or the truth of the gospel? You are powerless. That's a good place to be. The only hope that your friend has is for God to open the eyes of his heart or her heart to show them that the gospel is beautiful, to communicate to them a knowledge of his will that will help them to live in a way that's worthy. That is not something you can manufacture, so you need to pray for them with despair. You need to lock onto it like a bulldog. Lock onto the promises of God and pray those promises. Pray what Paul prays here for that person. Use these words to pray for that person. You're struggling with doubt? I have. There's no silver bullet out there waiting that, that, that if you just latch onto it, it's going to remove all concerns you have about the truthfulness of Christianity. What is going to remove those concerns is a vivid, direct taste of the beauty of the gospel and its story. A taste that shows you through spiritual wisdom and understanding, a type of understanding that's foolishness to the world, that these things are true. That Jesus lives, that he will return, and that in him you can have the only security that will outlast the grave. What we need is a sweet taste of God, of his gospel. What we need is a clear hope of heaven, and we are powerless to produce these things. So we need to pray like Paul does, with despair. We also pray with persistence. Pray with persistence. Look at both of Paul's prayers. Paul says in verse verse 3, where he begins his thanksgiving, he says, We always thank God for you when we pray for you. Ever since we've heard of it, we've been thanking God. Then, again, in verse 9, from the day that we heard about it, we have not ceased to pray for you. You've got to latch on to these promises, to this language, and pray them like uh, every day in the same way that you pray for your food. I mean, I think we connect with the idea that we've got to pray for our daily bread, right? Every day is a new day that, that requires things that are out of our control. What we need to see is the progress of the gospel is just as, just as daily of a need. 
that this kind of perceptual contact with the gospel is something that God has got to renew for us every morning. And so when we get up with persistence, even if we endure days, weeks, and months without seeing the fruit of it, we pray to him to open our eyes and to show us the beauty of the gospel. Every day we need it. Pray with persistence. And finally, pray with focus. Pray with focus. There are any number of practical solutions to help us keep keep a lock on who we're praying for and what we're praying for. Uh, I want to go ahead now and put in a plug for a, a midweek book study that we're starting this week on Thursday, uh, a, a book called A Praying Life. And part of that book's purpose is to give you some practical tools for this kind of prayer that we're talking about. I hope you guys can make plans to join us. Uh, I'll make another statement about that in a minute. But come up with a system of what you're going to pray for and who you're going to pray for. As for what to pray, pray the Bible. Pray the Psalms. Pray the prayers of Jesus. Use this week in your quiet time to pray the prayers of Paul. Look at this prayer in Colossians and use it in the morning to pray for yourself and for other people. The next day, turn to Ephesians and pray Ephesians 1 for yourself and for other people. Go to each letter of Paul and find these prayers and lock on to them and and pray them for yourself and others. There's a wonderful book that encourages prayer using the prayers of Paul by a guy named D.A. Carson. It's called uh, The Call for Spiritual Reformation. Highly, highly recommend it. I'd be glad to get you a copy if you don't have one. It's, it is a wonderful book for encouraging this kind of prayer of the Bible. Pray for a list of people. Start with your family. You want, to, you want your marriage to improve? You want to see your kids respond better? Prayer can be the best strategy. God can change people, and you can't. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for people you know who don't know Jesus. And here's my main plug. Pray for members of your church. We have a covenant that we sign with each other. It's one of the most beautiful things about being part of a body of Christ together is, is a, a set of promises that unite us. We've made them to each other when we joined the church. One of those promises is a promise to pray for each other, to pray regularly. This, people ask me a lot of times, how can we serve? What, how can we get involved? What can we do to serve the church? And if you want to know how you can serve our church, let me, let me make it really simple for you. First, help with child care. <laughs> Second, pray. Pray the gospel. Pray the gospel over the people in the church. We'll get, get a list of our members and pray over each of them. Pray for the institution itself. Pray for our ability to put on these services and the, the persistence, the, 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 the discipline to stay faithful to the gospel in spite of the fact that other things might grow us quicker. Pray for us because we believe that there is no success, that we, we, we don't want any kind of success that, success that could be explainable in terms that you could use to explain the success of Walmart. We're not after that. What we want is the kind of success that's only explainable because God brought it about. It's gospel change that we're after. Pray that over people in, in our church. In sum, pray like Paul. Pray the gospel. Spend time meditating on its beauty on what you've seen it do in your life and in the lives of others, and let that meditation drive you to thanksgiving. And because we're painfully aware that we haven't arrived yet, that what we give thanks for is true but not fully realized, pray that the kingdom will come in us. Pray for eyes to see. And we have the promise that God hears us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the richness of your word that is practical enough to meet us even in matters as specific as our 
inability to pray with regularity and consistency. We pray that the, the prayer we've considered this morning would remain in our hearts and on our minds. We pray for the confidence that comes from knowing you hear us and you have the power to respond to our requests. We pray that you would encourage us this morning with a gospel that is living and active, a gospel that you are more than ready to drive into the hearts of people. We pray that you would make of us a people of prayer, recognizing our dependence on you, our helplessness apart from you, and driven by that to make our requests to you with persistence, with boldness, and with hope. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.